Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game called Company That Is Legend by Design. If you want to check them out, you can go to Legendary Gear USA. That's legendarygearusa.com. I'm George Lynch. I'm your host of Legendary Gear and also the call tuner for uh, Legendary Gear. And uh, our saying around here, if it's not good enough for George's lanyard, it's not good enough for yours. Folks, this week's podcast finds us around the second week of August and um, puts us about a couple of weeks away from all quite a few states across the country will have their early September goose season, which has originally been created as what we call the nuisance goose season. This early goose season is was set up uh, years ago by the feds uh, with the federal migratory uh, what they're trying to do is control the local goose population and in areas where usually it's your suburban areas and the city areas where the geese were getting out of control. This was a, actually a, implemented as a tool to try to uh, control and, and actually decrease some of the goose local goose populations that um, a lot of these areas have. It, it can be some great hunting. I've joy, enjoyed it. I've done it. I think I've, ever since Michigan had their first season, I was participating in that. And I was in actually one of the few hunters that was out there in the late goose season, uh, which was in January and part of February. Um, there wasn't anybody that did that back then. And uh, pretty much waterfowl was waterfowl. It was hunted on the water. It was um, hunted during the October, November when migration was up. And that's when people... You know, they're out there because that's when the number of birds are moving through. That was when the majority of your hunters were hunting. Uh, like I said, when we first started the early goose and the late goose, we, we had the whole countryside to ourselves. Uh, 15, 20 years later now, it's, it's uh, grown tremendously. It's uh, a lot of states now are having their early, will have an early, I guess, a controlled uh, conservation season on Canada geese. But uh I like to break it down because now is about the time. Hopefully, you've been starting a little bit earlier in this when you're uh, thinking about your September season. And the cool thing about the September season that I want to bring in is that the guys, again, who were your hardcore waterfowl guys, you know, they stayed with it in October and November. But having the September season, what it did is that, uh, especially when the population started growing and the popularity and of uh, notoriety of being able to get out because we're all you know just inching. Everybody has a cabin fever. Everybody's wanting to get outdoors, and that was a cool thing with September season. Um, it's that it's early. We've all been pumped, you know, to get out there. But it allows even those guys who like to be bow hunters or deer hunters. You know, usually they don't kick until October and November. In Michigan, it was the uh, November fifteenth on was the holiday season. Pretty much, it's it's ritual. Um, through the statewide that opening day that kids are missing school and you know the state's a deer hunting state but having another extra uh, time to be able to get out there when the weather it's it's still hot um, it can be miserable and uh, we'll talk about that later of uh, preparations what we want you know what I like to do for the early goose season but um, it's a good time that it, it, it gets a lot of different people who didn't would probably never had a chance to waterfowl hunt at all, uh, Canada goose hunt at all, because they were deer hunters. And that early September season allows that opens the doors and, and, and just increases uh, the amount of people who have the opportunity to go out there in September. So I kind of broke this down. It's going to be a um, 
short, easy podcast, nothing difficult. We're not going to get into a whole um, extravaganza about, you know, the methods of calling and how I call. It's going to be, it's basically going to be so simple. Um, You know, we just did a podcast on teal hunting. It's definitely going to be a little bit more adverse than what teal hunting is to me. Teal hunting is pretty much a a, a set deal. It's pretty much a water uh, you got to have the water, you got to have the, the spot, you know, the, the setup and do a little bit of your scouting there. And if you don't have it, that's pretty much you're not going to teal hunt. Canada geese, which is kind of cool, is that they could roost in one area, but they can feed in several different areas. So that can open up a lot of opportunities for different guys in your area um, if they're willing to put in the work. Um, so my definition, that's that's pretty much what I'm giving my definition, what the early goose season is it's what I get at the September season some of the key points that I want to talk about and number one is scouting and a lot of the if you look through pretty much anything whether it's whitetails turkey uh, waterfowl the guy seems to be pretty consecutive or consistent in, in being um having success is usually putting in a lot of scouting, putting a lot of what we call road work, a lot of road miles of driving back and forth. You don't always have to have the geese. And the geese, you know, a lot of times in, in July and stuff might be molting when they're having their young. And what I do, my scouting will start as soon as I know that the crops are planted and what's coming up. Because pretty much historically, I know that the the crop everybody's looking for that cornfield and bean fields can be good um, when they're first cut wheat fields in the early September and this is where it kind of narrows it down on the early season in September it's only like six or eight percent of the crops are harvested so your food source is going to be limited uh, quite a bit and in pretty much in the midwest what you're looking for is anything that's growing wheat wheat stubble um, sweet corn now that that's that's your died and went to heaven lucky spot if you have sweet corn but uh and field corn can be good and but you usually your first spots are going to be those uh winter wheat fields the wheat fields that got picked now for some reason the wheat fields uh especially they're being harvested earlier and earlier every year it seems like you know it used to be the first week of august or middle of August, uh, you know, the fields will start getting chopped, but man, a lot of these guys are cutting their wheat fields the last week of July and third week of July and start watching that. And um, even though it's one of the prime food sources, the, the scary thing about having a wheat field that's been harvest, harvested early and you watch that, it's, um, if they're not planning to do another cut on that or whatsoever, um, by the time, if it's done in the last week of July, and by the time September 1st gets here, a lot of the grass and everything that's grown, the new shrouts that come up, and that's what those geese like to come in. They like to come in there and all that fresh little sprouts that are coming up. You know, they're, they're picking and eating all that once the sun is be able to hit that and they get a little bit of rain, the little green comes up. That's what those geese are in there heating, are hitting hard. They might be in there eating some of the wheat seed too, but majority is that little green sprouts that are starting to poke up through. If it gets too far, and uh, what happens a lot of times is guys, the fields will get overgrown and they'll lose the attraction. They'll still come to it if that's pretty much, they don't have a choice, but as soon as another field comes open, and remember that too, you, know, you might think you have the best field and it could be the best field when it's harvested and everything's right. 
But once the, the season, but just before the season, if that field's been sitting there for about two weeks, you know, with and, and as new grass starts coming up, and if you had, it all depends on the moisture and sun. But if it starts overgrowing, whatever gets cut after that will probably get the, the attention. So one of the old tricks that I, I like to do when I'm keeping my eyes, especially if I don't have chopped corn, I don't have uh, a sweet corn in the field, what you'll notice is that, that uh, what I like to do, and we've done this in the past, is just take a mower. And it's not baiting, you're not, you're not uh, changing anything. We're, we're not harvesting like picking corn or whatever, just to knock it down so they can have feed. What you're doing, because it's a natural harvest of that, you can go through, um, what I like to do is I'll have an area pretty much uh, take a two to three acre area. And in fact, if I'm in one of those fields that are, is growing um, fast and, and has a lot of foliage in it, try to find a spot, number one, that is uh, sets up a perfect ambush for concealment for you. Watch that. And then when I take the, your garden tractor out there, dude, you go right out there, unload it, mow about a, a two acre spot. You can do a circle, you can do the square, or you can do a rectangle, however it sets up to basically what borders your concealment. And I'm telling you, man, you mow that, that fresh grass and put that out there, it looks like a brand new cut wheat field. It is a magnet. The geese can see that from up above, especially when the, the high grass is you know, all around it, making the border down to this flat grass. That looks like just a fresh cutting. It's a little trick. It works. It's um, again, you know, we're working in that time of year that we probably got about 8% of the crops harvest. So it limits you. So whatever you do have, try to take advantage of it. So that's one of the tricks that we do. Knowing that area. And like I said, I'm scouting before the season gets here. As soon as these crops come up, I pretty much know the water. Now, the only thing it can change in water is again, how dry it's been. So, you know, you're going to scout on that, but whatever, bodies of water and with geese it's going to be which a little bit different than the uh, teal uh, you're going to need a little bit more of the bigger and open more open trees open more allowing the geese to come in if you're going to get a good number of geese hanging in there um, so your big water is pretty much you know the geese are going to roost they're going to it's historically year after year we're going to be in that same spot so but knowing those crops and where the crop fields lay and the location for that water will change the flight plans uh, from year to year based on the crops around there. So that's the thing I'll pay attention to real quick. If I'll see what corn is up, then I'm on that. I'm on talking to the landowners, um, winter wheat, but pretty much in that September season, um, what you're gonna look for is try to find the dairy farmers in your area. The dairy farmers are the guys who have all the dairy cattle who are going to usually the first ones in your area who are going to chop that corn down in what we call silage and feed that to the cattle. And when you find a fresh chopped cornfield in the second week of September, it is a magnet. It can be a gold mine. And uh, we hunted that a lot. And if you got a farmer who's starting to, to chop a cornfield, you, you know, you want to talk to that farmer because there's nothing worse than being set up with with you and your buddies out there in the cornfield, a half-picked field and having the farmer show up and you know you guys gotta move decoys and everything. So one one tip I would give you is that when you find these these chopped cornfields and it, it's half-picked and, and the farmer hasn't gotten the rest of the field, I would contact that farmer to try to set up a schedule to make sure you want him to know that 
you know, you do not want to be in his way. You do not want to uh, change his plan or, you know, his schedule. So you want to be able to go in there and know when he's not there. So when you're setting up, it just shows a courtesy. Farmer's times are, is very valuable. Pretty much a lot of people, you know, it's a respect for his time. And uh, trust me that they, it gets noticed and it goes long ways. When, especially when you, when, if it's good hunting and you got competition knocking on his door, take every advantage you can to show your respect, show you that you care, but work this time schedule with him. When he's not going in there, what we I love to you know a half pick field with with corn standing, and it is as simple as using pickle buckets, or five gallon pickle bu buckets is what we used to use years ago. Go to Subway and ask them for their green empty green pickle buckets, and they give them to you all day long free, and um, just sit on a pickle bucket and inside the second third corn row, and I I use a my fence row. Um, classic setup with decoys and and uh, pink, you know which basically pinching the birds in but that time of year especially of the quarter when it's so easy to get those birds um to quarter and hang above the head you know and they'll hang 10 to 15 yards they just feel that safety above that corn which something they probably wouldn't do out with the blind out in the middle of the field so that is one of my favorites and if i do have a wheat stubble field like i said again if you're going to cut it and you have to cut it, try to pick a, a spot of ambush, a spot with location that when I cut this, it gives me all I get. I get the advantage of concealment. I still have plenty of room and make sure it's not a spot that's so tight that it's hard to work the birds to come back around either from crosswind from side to side or going straight above you. So keep that in mind. Um, one of the big mistakes that I will say that I see early season guys doing is that they will set up in these areas and they take, they'll have big groups of guys and the geese are piling in there. They'll go in there and pretty much spend the whole morning, whole day trying to shoot a limit. And I, and I understand that's why we're hunting this time of year because we're trying to reduce the goose population numbers, but try to also remember, I'm trying to make sure that I have the best bang for my buck, trying to, to lengthen my success of days in the field. I'd rather have, actually it'd be awesome to have like seven to eight good days in a field than two awesome days. That's kind of how I feel. And, and don't get me wrong, every day in the field is a better day than at work, I get that. But when I'm out there and I want to tip some toenails and you know, and work them, I like going out there. And it isn't always about shooting the limit, you know, it's about shooting flocks and, um, because there's a lot of things you can't control. You can't control everything in the flock is coming in. I can't control uh, my my hunting partners or whoever I'm taking. If it's me guiding, I cannot control their shooting. But I can control on the amounts of flocks that we shoot into. The old rule of thumb in the early season, what we used to do is the rule was three flocks and out. And uh, no matter what, whether they had a, a, a limit or not, it, it wasn't that important. You know, uh, it wasn't about having a huge pile of uh, 50 geese that we shot and we stood there all day shooting 10 boxes of shells and and shot every geese and probably had just that many cripples that were flying around. I'd rather have uh, a lower amount of kills. Let's say, you know, my, my, my uh, bag level, you know, my bag amount, I'd rather have le or less than more 
I'd rather have birds that were coming in that we shot at 20, 25 yards, even at 30 yards, uh, each one that we crumbled. We didn't take the 50 yards and pull two out of a flock of, of 15 and educated a whole bunch. You know, it's just, that's not how I started the goose hunt. If that's how you goose hunt, I do, if that's great for you, it works for you. It's just, that's cool. It just doesn't work for me. And I kind of feel that if everybody tried to work that, that mentality of what I could get in at that 30 yard mark and um, even 35 and 40, I mean, if, if that's your furthest shot, then I think that we all would benefit from that. I think that we'd have more birds that would finish in the holes and not be so as much as I'd say gun shy when they're coming in, hanging at 50 and 60 yards out there. So that's very important as one of my key points. Um, I'm also trying to, de to decide, you know, it's easier, like I said, we, de we determine the feeding areas, um, picking out the roost, that's a gimme. And that's the cool thing about waterfowl, where, you know, hunting uh, turkey or hunting deer, you know, you gotta get off, get into the woods. You gotta do the, do the leg work and, and try to try to find the, the deer. And it's putting a lot of effort in. Well, waterfowl, pretty much if I know where they're roosting, I can follow those birds inside my truck, drinking a cup of coffee, finding out where they're feeding. So you take advantage of that and that goes from the roost. So we turn on, you, you find where the feed is, you find the roost. I think there's another thing that we search and we look for, and I call loafing areas. Because it when it's hot, they're not wanting to fight. It's not like in October, November, when the air temperature starts dropping a little bit and that temperature, those birds can fly all day long. In September, it's hot, it can be nasty, depending, you know, it could, it could get up to still 80, 90 degrees, something miserable sitting out in the blind with mosquitoes buzzing at 90 degrees. That's what I'm saying is the birds aren't gonna fly. They could be pretty much uh, punctual how they're gonna fly. They're gonna do a morning feed and an evening feed. Um, and that's tough too when it's hot, you know, concentrate. I, I probably spend 70% of my strength concentrating on morning feeds and what I do in the evening feeds. And if it's getting real hot, you can concentrate. I would actually forget the evening feeds because if it gets super hot, those birds can start pushing that uh, the shooting limits and shoot the time limit there in the afternoon. And, and that's just, you know, it's easy to control, know the shooting time in the morning. Once it hits day and it goes on, we're, we're good to go. So shooting time's not really a big issue uh, in the morning for me as it is in the afternoon, because you've been sitting there all day waiting for those birds to fly. And if they fly and you're running one or two minutes right to that, that shooting time, to the sunset and all that stuff, it could be pretty easy to want to, you know, a little bit uh, disgusted and frustrated to want to shoot. So, you know, on those real hot evening where they're flying late close to that shooting time, instead of making the air and, and, and some, one of your guys in the, in the group there happen to shoot um, a bird that maybe one or two minutes past the time, I like to look what I call loafing areas. Could be a loafing pond, could be a golf course, could be a lot of horse pastures, uh, cattle pastures, a little bit of ponds. They will hold a lot of geese, especially those little horse farms around the, the city limit edge, the suburban area. Could be, I've seen in Indiana, I've seen Ohio, I've seen Michigan, that those birds will come in after a morning feed uh, and just pile in, lick their wounds from the day, pretty much stay there to the evening feed, fly out, and it could be later, 
and then fly back to the roost with the big water. So in scouting and knowing that, it isn't always going from the big water to field, back to big water, back to field, and then you're in that back and forth. I think loafing areas can be huge. And again, a loafing area is only as good if you take care of it. And again, with me, and it's just me, I'm not a big group hunting guy. Um, I like three to four guys. I like my buddies when we go in there, three to four of us, because we can control. I can control three to four guys a lot easier than I can 10 to 12. They were sitting down that line. Also, um, it's a lot easier to hide three to four guys than trying to hide 10 or 12. I mean, it's all common sense stuff. But loafing areas are definitely overlooked. You find that, you go in. And, and don't hammer that loafing area every day. And, and I'm telling you, if in a two-week period, if you really want to utilize that loafing area um, to its full, maybe four hunts. And you go and bang it, wait every three or four days, bag, then bang it again, wait for another three or four days, go back in and bang it. And I guarantee you, you're going to continue to have, it might not be like the first hunt you hunted in there, but I can guarantee you, it's going to be a lot better. You could drag four hunts during that two-week season where you would probably be done after the, if you kept continuous pressure on it, you'd be done after the second and third hunt. So very important to put in your mind, you know, I was trying to think about tomorrow, trying to think about uh, not just for today, but you know, we got two weeks in this deal. Now, if you've got all kinds of spot and it, man, I got so many, so many spots, I can go and burn this one one day. It doesn't matter because I got 12 more over here. I can burn, dude, you're a blessed man. I say the gods are on your goose. Gods are on your side. And, you do whatever trips you trigger, but um, it's pretty tough. And when, like I said, we had, I think the last I remember the, the license sold for the early September goose season, I think we used to have about 80,000 goose hunters. So that's a lot of pressure. And if you think back in the day, 20 years ago, there was never anybody hunting a September season of goose. So that's a huge influx uh, uh, and it's a, a big influx in pressure and changing things. Um, and that's something to think about, you know, 20 years ago, before we had these seasons, you know, we just had the, the October, November, and a little bit of December, and depending on where you went in the country, you had a little bit later. But without these early seasons, a lot of the birds weren't getting many pressure uh, like they are today. So when you look at birds and, you know, in the first two weeks of September, um, I believe North Dakota might come in last week of August, might be first of September. There, I know that decoded ever since COVID has has been upon us that the the amount of people who went to Canada uh, had changed so when we weren't able to leave the country North Dakota just got overloaded I think the best thing for that happened to goose hunting was to lift the restrictions and let people start crossing the border and head back up to Canada um, it's just it, it, I, I've I would say the last two years I've noticed a change and, and especially in the late season, the geese have been, I'd say the last two years, the toughest I've ever faced in, in hunting late season geese. Uh, it's just for the amount of pressure of the people that stayed here who are hunting compared to what we used to leave the country. And, and it just, it added a lot more on, on what I call local. So we get past, you know, look for scouting. The second thing I like to talk about is about decoys. Decoys is, um, it's not a big issue to me in September. Uh, but what I try to do is that, that I that is a big issue to me and you know all these brands out there today guys it's so much better than when we first started when we just had the carry light flambeau shells 
you know, when Bigfoot was the first thing come out, we thought we died and went to heaven, still great full body decoy today, but there is a lot of full body companies out there now who, you know, they're all good. You got Dave Smith, you got Dakota, you got Avian X, you got Greenhead Gear, you got uh, DO, um, DOA or DO, DOA, um, you got, uh, Higgin, I'm putting myself on the spot here. Yeah, Higgin, I could keep going on the list. Final approach. I mean, there's so many, and I mean, I could pro- I could go with every one of these guys and kill geese with their with their decoys. I mean, compared to what we had, if you guys ever saw the, if you want to see something bad, look at the old flambo and carry like full bodies. They had a big hole. You could stuff a volleyball up in the bottom of them, and they just. The best thing that happened to them is that when you know, Bigfoots came out that everybody used their carry lights and flambos for yard, uh, lawn ornaments. But um, it was just, we have so much better today. Everything's better. And from calls to, to the decoys. But when it comes to the decoys, like I said, I did a lot of studying and I lived with geese pretty much year round when I had my shop in Michigan. But one of the things that we, I always like to pay, pay attention to is about, you know, natural environments and their natural setting. You know, how do the animals react and contentment once they're under contentment? And one thing that I noticed, especially in the early season, but if you start watching these geese, um, they're, they're, bro- they're all with their family groups. And, and you might have two, th- 250, 350 geese out in this field here. And when people see that, man, there's got to be 300 geese in this field. So they think, well, I'm going to take 300 geese. But you understand they're going to set it up in a 50, 60 the yard circle where a 200 yard field you know they were spread out that whole field so it's still and that's something to think about they're not concentrated like they are in the late season to more into a particular spot where in the early season geese are going to be stranded out and, and pushed out so you know what what i do is i take advantage of that and 18 decoys used to be my magic number all the time again like i said i wasn't hunting with big groups of guys but 18 decoys used to be that was my um, perfect number. It just, you'd set a dozen and a half. And, and I basically, you know, I'm real, the rule of thumb to me was, you know, I have a ratio of, of uh, feeders to centuries. And to me, we used to use this back in the day. And I think it's the easiest thing to tell people because I think today, a lot of guys use way too many active decoys. Active decoys, birds with heads up replicate a lot of you know yeah there could be walking and moving and stuff like that but to me the first answer i would give what's the first response of any bird that gets spooked is the head comes up those heads are up and they're looking so it's always showing that there's something that's causing that or something that's drawing their attention where i'd rather as geese look out there and you see sleeping geese you see resting geese they're laying down and you see the feeding geese that kind of much shows me that those birds found food. That tells when I look at that scenario, that picture, if I were to put a title on that picture, means found food, satisfied. And that's what they're thinking up there. And that's what I want them to think. So in that early season, I, and it doesn't help, you know, my 18, I'll have 18 full bodies and I'll pretty much have, I might have uh, 14, um, 15, all feeders and I'll put only two centuries. I'm telling you, that, that's the truth. I just it might have two centuries and a century's always been my, my uh, special positioning, strategized goose that I try to get the birds because 
Canada's coming from behind and flying in where snow's far above, come down. So I'm gonna try and emulate the birds that they kind of what they do is they, they fly in short and then walk into the pattern. And so that's what we're trying to emulate. And as, as we go and as the pressure dictates and let the birds dictate, then to decide whether I need to add more decoys. It, you know, if it gets to where the 18 geese, you know, it isn't always, okay, it's only gonna be 18 geese, but that's what I'm gonna start with. And if the birds start dictating and say, hey, okay, this is just not working. I need more of their, they've gone to more of a flight pattern has changed and I'm now not hunting on the X. I might be hunting traffic geese then we might add some more birds in there, but I'm still not gonna change my ratio of feeders and centuries. The only thing that is cool that we filmed a lot, I've seen them a lot of times in September, more so in September than I have uh, in the regular season until the late season, but uh, shells will work great. Cause I've seen them, you'll see a lot of birds out there, they'll eat and then just tuck down pretty much, wait for the other birds to, to feed and then they're out. You're going to head for the back to the rooster, back to the loafing pond, wherever they like to go. Whatever, I guarantee wherever they're going to go, it's going to be what they think is one of their safety places. So keeping it open and hitting it once in a while and let them come back in, hit it again. You know, and each time it's going to drag down the numbers probably, but you're still going to get action. You know, if I went in there and banged the heck out of it the first time, I pretty much put it back because not everybody can kill a limit in three three rounds you know pretty much those if you all those pictures you see on social media that you know 10 guys with 70 geese they probably stayed there half the day to burn that field or they hunted the whole day in that field to burn it um and what i'm trying to say is they probably educated i would say five times the amount they shot um just by not every bird came in not every bird finished not every bird got shot but every bird was in that area that heard the shooting, saw what was going on or got disrupted, you know, and they, that pushed them off. So, you know, in our minds, we're sitting there and we look at that pile of geese and we're just, yeah, you know, we're high-fiving, we think we've done it, but those birds are flown away thinking in their head, what well, just happened? And that ain't never going there again, you know? So something to think about. So that's what I like to look at on decoys. Um, if you want, I know today we got a lot talking about silhouettes. Silhouettes is a, in the last two, three years has gained a whole lot of popularity. And I'm not going to talk bad of silhouettes. And I'm not going to say that they're the savior of the game. They're just part of a tool. They are a good tool and utilized right. They can at different parts, whenever you, you, know, you bring them up, it's just like the full body, it's going to have its days and it's going to have its days. If you're a guy that wants to use a silhouette i say that the, probably the early season i work this backwards early season would probably be better i think that the uh, reason why i'm saying that is what i've noticed of using silhouettes later i get in the season the more that i'm challenging and being challenged against birds who are a lot higher flyers birds that are up there a ways um when they come from the side you know and they get over them and they're at this certain altitude They'll, they'll get back tight, they'll break up and then pull back tight again. And that's to me tells me that they're not sure what's down there below them. It hasn't convinced them enough because it's caused enough uh, questioning in their head that they usually, a lot of times I've seen them pull back together and keep flying. So we're a full body, you know, utilizing that full body when I have birds that are way up there, they can look down and still see 
you know, with a silhouette, it's now you see it, now you don't. Um, I know guys talk about trying to move them on the 45 and stuff like that. And I think, wow, it's just, we're over, we're overthinking it. Um, I really don't know. I still think that you're just getting a two dimensional look on that silhouette. And, um, but I think, you know, it's, again, it's what the surrounding, I've always said this before, it, I think the surrounding pressure and let the, that dictate what I'm going to use. And I think because of the popularity of, of uh, silhouettes, see, I, I did it back in the day, we did it backwards, you know, because back in the day when full bodies first came out, we were just crushing them. And then everybody has full bodies and then it got and everybody had layout blinds. And even in the late season, when we used to just pound them, you know, the geese were starting to get educated and it started getting tough. It started getting really tough. And I've said the story many times, but, you know, we were the first ones in my area that hunted the first late season in January. And after about three or four years and we're getting out and we were pounding birds, we had guys in every field. It didn't take long to start to, you know, catching on. A lot of guys didn't want to put up the cold and then they found out that, you know, kind of how, how do you hunt them? Watch this, how we were doing it in the fields and things like that. But after there in a while, when, like I said, with all the pressure, the geese got tough. And, you know, we, we have some of our fields around, we had city limits right border to the field. So, you know, we were getting the first look coming out and they'd look good and 80 yards all of a sudden pull and go to, you'd see guys in the next field calling, they pull on them, they pull, you know, and fly another three quarters or a mile and um, be on the field that they're going to that no one can hunt. So what we did is that, uh, you know, my buddy with me said, man, how we get, how do, what are we doing wrong? I said, dude, look at, look at around us. I said, we can see guys in every field here. They're all using full bodies. Look at that. And we're all using layout blinds. And I'll guarantee you, we probably talked three quarters of these guys out and run a short read. And I, so the next day at work, I told him, I said, let's try something different. Let's take all our silhouettes that we have together. And at that time was the outlaw silhouettes made by Jim Cripe out of Washington. But uh, we didn't mix them with full bodies. We went out there and we just set up the silhouettes. Now, granted, we haven't used these silhouettes probably in two years of hunting because the full bodies were doing their deal. So I was just kind of, we put them away and someday we'll get to them again. Well, we the next day, we, we hop in that field after work, got in there quick. We set up with just silhouettes, put our blinds. So we were in the same field, um, same geese, same hunters, and it was bloody. Those birds, there was no circling. Those birds came straight on and into the bootstraps, uh, finished up. We shot at the It was bloody. And you look back and you say, wow, is silhouettes the greatest thing? Well, it was that day because it was different than what everybody else used around. Don't get yourself in a rut that, you know, because, you know, Joe Cool out here and everybody's, you know, it looks cool and everybody's using them, using them all the time. And, and if the amount of people use them, you're going to have success stories. I think you, if you knew the truth behind a lot of the success stories, they probably really burnt themselves pretty good uh, after that hunt. But um, so that was a little different. So we would save the silhouettes just for the later in the season when the birds got more pressure, just trying to change up the different look. I say today, you know, because of social media and the, the marketing of, you know, pushing and the young guys, you know, the, the popularity of silhouettes. And I get silhouettes because, you know, as a young guy, I can truly understand that because that's why back in the day we made, you know, we were just poor rednecks and we made our own homemade silhouettes. 
um, which is a lot cheaper than you know paying four or five hundred dollars a dozen back then for for full bodies. So I can understand that. I get it. So you, you know, some young guys, I can understand, you know, you get guys in there and if you're buying them for 60, $70 a dozen, you know, and you can go out with a bunch of your buddies and get 10 dozen so much easier to carry. You don't need a big trailer. Like you think you can have a couple of buddies and trucks carry the blinds and, and carry the silhouettes and you're home free. I get that. I totally understand that. I just wouldn't say that it's the best thing in the world for killing geese. It, it, they have bonuses and they have minuses and you know plus and minus but you know and the plus is it's they're lighter they're cheaper easier to set up quicker to take down and it all depends like i said i dick today i would dictate what the pressure dictates what to use you know and i to me again i'm going to use my silhouettes early because the, the geese aren't flying as high you're going to have more local geese. You got geese that are flying lower. So when that degree of angle, you know, is coming in, it's easier to see this than when they're doing this. So you're going to see more side of that, that silhouette with more low flying birds. And I think if you look, the number success ratio of the early season compared to late season is this right here, more low flying birds coming in. That's one of the things that we noticed here in Iowa that uh, I'm getting a lot more speckle bellies than we've ever gotten. I saw probably more speckle bellies than I did Canada's during the regular honker season. And those specks were coming in at three and four and 500 a group. And then they were coming up. They were, they were pretty high when they come off and they're the little chicken specks. And I noticed when they got out here, they were breaking up and trying to like, they wanted to work out in front of us. But this group that was kind of hanging to the left, when they got above us, got tight again and then just kept going. And as they kept going and these birds out here were up trying to work, they just swung out further and went caught back up. And it's just like snow geese, they follow the leader and then you're just sitting there with your hand in your pocket, but uh, choking your chicken, I guess. But so picking your time. So when, when I'm gonna use them, I use those silhouettes early season, more low flying birds as more if I have migrators coming in, I might, you know, if I have to use more full bodies then I'll let the geese dictate that, but I am going to go out with my full body. When I start getting that more overhead, I definitely think you're going to have a better chance of pulling birds that are straight above you that get, you know, if they still can't hang on that high altitude above, you're not going to lose them. I think you got a better chance of pulling those down. That's just, again, that's my opinion. It's like elbows. Everybody's got a couple, but you know, that's what I've been noticing lately. Um, I'm going to talk now that one of the other key points in is everybody knows is concealment. Now, you can say that you know, concealment's the most important thing there is. And I'm going to say I disagree with that. I mean, it's very, very important. But on the X, having birds is the most important thing. And you guys, I, I mean, I've seen it when it's been good and birds were coming in that I've gone out, been busted and laid down on the ground, had geese fly right over me. You know, it's, it's not moving using common sense. But if I am on the X and, and I'm in the area or I'm picking a good spot, concealment, you know, will be more important to me how I'm going to get uh, achieve my concealment than where I'm going to shoot the geese and what spot. A lot of guys I know, um, they, you know, the old age additive is that, um, you know, try to hunt where they last fed. I get that, 
Um, but in early season with me, you know, I got two weeks to hunt and I want to break it up. I believe that they've come to that field. They haven't been shot out of that field. They don't know what's worth out of the part of the field that you're in. You know, it, it is about a territorial thing. It's about a competition. It's about, you know, the survival of fittest of making sure you have food. So in that early season, they, as long as I'm close, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be a quarter mile from them, but you know, if I got to get within 50, 70, 80, hundred yards to where they're last fed, doesn't bother me a bit. And I'll think about that because I want to set up if there's any peninsulas, if there's any type of uh, big dips, uh, traverses uh, that they have, I don't hear in Iowa, they have those a lot. I choose those. I, excuse me, I love those. And I'll tell you what I try to do on the area that I usually figure on a terrace out in the field. If you got an area where you pretty much think you know where the geese are passing and coming forth or where they're coming from, I like to set my blind on the downhill side of the terrace. You know, I'm trying to say is trying to get on that terrace that will hide me more from the approaching than when they're heading back to the roost. Um, I could kill goose or I could, we could shoot geese heading back to the roost, but I'm gonna guess 90% of your success and a chance of being successful is gonna be from that flight from the roost to go out to feed. They're going ahead now. When usually when they're flying back and they've already had their belly full and they don't wanna be where you're at, it's, it's pretty tough to get one to come in. They got water, they're gonna get back to the uh, water or their loafing pond. It's just the belly's full. They don't feel, they don't have the pull of hunger in their stomach to want them to come down there. But hey, this, this may be better food or this is where it's at. So that's why I try to put my ter or my blind on the down uh, on the downside uh, of the terrace uh, from where the geese approach. And I hope that makes sense. If you think about that, gives me a little bit uh, more cover, you know, cause the geese coming through putting A-frames and, and, and I'm talking about using A-frames and these, you probably could use a layout blind, but it'd be pretty tough because of the hill behind me uh, trying to block me. Um, especially it's awesome if you can get a field that's running east and west. And so pretty much when we're setting our blinds like this, so we're gonna be looking north and south. I'm not really having to play into the sun as much, um, you know, with the geese working on that way. So try to remember that when in concealment, you know, I will utilize the natural surrounding as much as I can. Now, when it gets to the point and um, say you pick a fence row, I love fence rows that separates two fields, might have a wheat stubble on one side, bean on the other. However that works, I like to get on the edge of the break of both those. If I'm in a fence row, we'll use layout blinds. I'll try to do everything I can from that natural, from the fence row, from the peninsula, that has all the vegetation as much as we can. And when the geese get to where we can't kill them in there, that they they start veering away from these spots, then, then it's time to move out to the middle of the field, move out to the little brush spots out there, try to find an old spot, put out your, your layout blinds, lay into the decoys, then move out there. But what I've done is I've kind of gradually worked my way up to that. I took advantage of every day in my natural killing spots and you're probably going to get more days in those natural killing spots with the natural ve vegetation than running out in the middle of the field right away. And that's, if I would say, a big mistake with a lot of young guns who's going out there today. They do their scouting. They see 300 geese out there. They're going to 
call up 10 of their buddies. They're going to set up 300 decoys out in the middle of the field, try to put 10 blinds in there and head right to the center. And as these geese coming in, they're going to be a little less suspicious, but I don't think they're still going to commit. You're going to have adult geese that still aren't going to commit like the juveniles. And so what's going to happen is, is from 50 yards on in, they're going to start getting blasted. And if you have 300 geese and they start coming on that line in the morning, those first ones start getting pounded. Um, it's pretty much that the, that back line is going to take off. And one of the things I talked about, you know, it's a lot easier to add more decoys than to take away once I'm out there. One thing to remember, if you're in a field that does three, have three to four or 500 birds out there, going out there with my dozen and a half trying to set up and I'm in with, you know, a good cover around me, uh, being in natural vegetation, those first birds that always go to that field know what that field looks like without birds in it. And they come through and they see 18 birds. I might wonder, it might be more curiosity to fly by. I'll guarantee you they'll flip out of their gourd when they come off the roost and every day it's been them. And then one day they show up and there's 300 people there. It, it, the red flag and, and that is time and time again. I think it's the same mistake that all the young guns make, you know, and it's, I get it. You want to get a great, uh, and there's nothing wrong taking a hero shot, but I'm not there to hunt for my hero shot. The hero shot comes from having a good hunt. It's not my whole thing of being there. I'm there to enjoy the nature, enjoy the, the uh, challenge of working all year and, and a call that I designed, call that I tuned, uh, a, a spread that I set, a location that I picked, and my hand that flagged to all this, to a gun that I practiced shooting that, you know, I like to think I'm a good shot, but I, I like to say also, I don't think I have to be super good to shoot them at 30 yards. Great shots. Now, if you want to shoot them at 50 and 60, to brag you're a great shot shooting at geese at 50 and 60. That's your deal. Well, then knock yourself out. To me, I'd rather be a mediocre shot killing geese at 25 and 30. Think about that. That's There's something said in that one. Um, we talked about, you know, trying to use homemade. Uh, I do use homemade blinds. I do like an A-frame. If I got to a big winter wheat field and there's no place to put cover in there back in the day what we used to do is take a half inch re-rod cut it up and, and we made blinds that with four by eight panels uh, on a re-rod and flat stock that we cut at an angle tack weld into the corners to give integrity and strength uh, but we'd build these four sides with pins and hinges so each panel would have a pin the other one would have a hinge and you just put it right in there they would connect you could take it away and four parts have a half roof on it. Then we used to buy the fast grass, put it in the blind in our yard in September. And the mistake people make when they put the fast grass and fake grass on, they put it so the grass lays flat. And what you really wanna do is you wanna hang it upside down as you secure it to the blind. You want that fast grass to hang upside down. So over the, 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 the case of the summer, that when you're, you're the wind and the rain and the sun bleaching down and, and taking away that sheen from that grass. But what is going to happen is that grass, that foliage is going to start folding down and falling down as the rain and everything pushes it and it's going to get bushy. Instead of laying there with a flat mat, looks like a, you know, a, a magic carpet mat, you're going to turn, you want it upside down and you want that, that brush to, to, to bush out. So then what we'll do is once we get that to where we want to take those panels apart, head out to your wheat stubble fields, head out there two weeks.
before the season. And it don't even have to be where the geese are. Don't worry about where the geese, I mean, if you want to put it in the center or wherever, put two of them out there. You put two in, in different parts of the field and leave them. Let those geese get used to it. Roll the bales of, of hay are out there all the time. The birds, actually deer and everything, guys have hunted in hay bale blinds. They use hay bale blinds. Redneck makes them. A lot of people have the hay bale blinds they'll use trying to go out there. But these homemade deals, what's kind of cool about them is that I will leave them in my area, try to watch them. And um, well, the geese will get used to that and seeing that, and especially a week before the season if they're out there and these geese are coming in. And if you want to set two decoys out, put that blind, set a couple of decoys, leave them, let it go. Let those birds try to find it and get in there. I'm telling you, leaving those blinds in there, you even though they're in the middle of the field and they're moving around, they're used to seeing that. And I think your success, we've always been successful. And when it's time to go, you pick up the, you can drive the trailer out there, pick those panels up and pull the pins out and they lay flat in your trailer, hang it up, head to the next spot where you're going to hunt. Calling and flagging, we're going to get to the next point in that. Again, that's real simple. Calling it to me is, is if less is more. And one thing about it, if I know that with YouTube and everything on the internet today, everybody wants to they hear all these different sounds and every kid wants to learn how do I do these fancy, these wild sounds that everybody's doing on a call. And I get it, it's fun, it's something different. But that is totally, when I go to hunt and I'm out in the field, that part of knowing and, and what I'm trying to do, that's a different game. I'm not really... Um, I want to be goose, but I want to be specific with my goose. I want to be able to read them. I want to be able to attack them and then back off. Being able to attack, that's to me is a perfect hunt when I can give a couple clucks, honks, and a couple moans, get them to set up, finish them as they come. They start to move a little bit, a couple more hiccups, or, you know, and, and just let that bird finish and come in. That to me is the impressiveness of using a call than having someone who sat there and could run the living shit out of that call and just blow it and, and, and run it. We don't want to say blow. My wife gets on me all the time. So it's running that call, but you want to, and he can run a routine that would just win the world. I don't want to hear that when I'm out in the field, I want to hear the geese reply to me. I want to hear the geese reply to my hunters, my partners. I want to see what their bodies are doing. And Harold, like I said, Harold Knight of Knight and Haley said years ago that he would run that call and hit that note just to get a reaction out of that bird. And that's what I'm trying to do. If that bird is hooked up and he's dropping all the way in, I'm telling you, I'm just basically, I believe, put the call in your pocket, let him finish and, and then get ready to shoot. Flagging is uh, an art that I don't think you don't see anybody talk about it. You don't see too many people demonstrating that there, that there is a proper way on, on flagging and a, a guy who does the flagging is usually your weak caller. The guy can't call, but by gosh, he, he better learn how to flag. And a flag guy can kill you. I've seen guys who hunted with us and didn't can't call, but he wanted to be part of the hunt and he's going to run that flag. And when the geese were about 30 yards from us and making a swing, he pulls his hand out of the blind and hits that flag and watch those geese just bump and run out of the area. Of course, he's got, he looks like a kid with his hand in a cookie jar sliding back in the blind. And uh, you're wanting to play like one of those chipmunks at Chuck E. Cheese's and hit him on top of the head. But it's very important that my flagging is the first thing that we do before calling. I'll hit that flag. And if I can get them a quick response, and it's on that response. If I hit a flag on a bird that's way the heck out there and, and I get a quick response, 
I will follow up with a couple, some spit notes and just confident calls, but really watching that bird. Cause if he responds quick means that he's ready to come. So I want to let him, I, I don't want to be the one that blew him out of the field, you know, cause I was over anxious. So the natural thing he turned, he let, you know, I got his attention and he saw the decoy. So that quick reaction means, Hey, I like what I just saw. I'm going to go check that out quick and I'm going to come quick and I'm going to come down in there. So let, let that happen. Let it work. Now, if I had to work and work and the guy hitting the flag, and you, you got him a little bit and they broke in, you had to hit the flag again, then I will get on that call and get aggressive. You got to get that commitment. You've got to get them to start bowing up and start dropping that elevation. And when they start coming in, you know, you hit that flag first. And, and once they hit about 80 to 100, no more than 80 yards, that flag is done. Because I do not want to draw eyesight and attention to where I am in that blind. So as they're starting to come, start picking up that call a little bit, start being a little bit of confidence noise in it, you know, some murmuring and stuff. But watch those birds as they come in. And that's why I'm flagging. I would, it'd be a tough choice if guys said, you know, would you rather, what would you leave home, your flag or your, your call? I mean, the flag would probably stay home before the call. I'm not going to be one of those guys that talk shit and say, you know, well, I'd rather have my flag than the call. Well, the flag's important. I can still kill them with the call if I have to. And if you know what you're doing with the call, if you don't, you probably need that flag to help you uh, finish them. But if you know and you're pretty proficient, you know, the flag is just a long tool. It gives movement. Once I've got that and it shows me if they're, they're, they like that and it shows me the attitude. If that quick response, great attitude, you got to work them. Well, the flag isn't pretty much going to do it all the way. You got part of it. It's just part of the, the of the, uh, of your promotion of your look you know it was part of the setup it's going to take some calling to finish these birds in and i've always said usually you got to take it takes three things to finish birds consistently in your bootstraps sometimes you can have birds that you know they come down and you, you just looked up and there they were out of nowhere and lit and came right in okay the decoys did that but consistently you, the decoys have to be a hundred percent on the calling has to be a hundred percent on and then you've got to be in the right spot. Concealment has to be right. If you have all three of those, and all three of those criteria, when I go to set up, I try to make sure that I'm mastering all three of those. Now, there's not every time that I'm able to master that. You know, I still at least wanted to get two out of the three. Um, and each time, in each class that you miss, you know, that you're not mastering, I think your chances of success go down more and more. And same with ducks, and I think same with deer and everything else. So it's about location. It's about, you know, the de getting the decoys, mastering the decoys, knowing how to set spreads, know how to read birds, know how to open holes, know how to position birds. And I've seen guys that said, you know, I don't worry about my spreads. I just throw decoys out there and I use this little call to direct them and put them. Well, as your doctor do a little, I guess that's pretty cool. And you can talk to the animals and, but uh, I've never met a doctor do little. And I've seen times that I've used the call with no decoys and brought them in. But I wouldn't put money that I can consistently do that. And it's not going to happen every day. So, again, try to master all three uh, and be for more consistent success. One more thing I want to talk about the calling. I, was, I started to mention this and I didn't get to finish. I'm going to finish it this time. When I'm talking about calling, I'd rather see a guy who could do less calls and had the, you know, the range of less goose but was pure goose than somebody who tries to blow notes 
that he hears on YouTube, he hears his friends doing contests and cannot master it, yet he thinks he needs to do this in front of the geese. I'd rather tell him to leave his call at home. It sounded really good across the road. He needs to go back over there and practice. But basically, if you can do cluck and moan, and that's all you could do, but it's goosey as hell, I'd rather have that guy hunt with me than somebody who likes to rattle his brains off. That's just, that's just a, a clear point. Take that. You know, I'm not trying to hammer people who, you know, who can blow good. If you can't make it sound right, though, practice at home to get achieve it. Don't practice it out in the field. The geese, geese are tough enough to, to, to try to put in the, the hole. Um, last thing I want to leave you on that we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about shooting. Shooting's real important. Like I said, I believe if you do everything right and you put your, uh, do your homework and, and, and try to polish your, and master your skill. I think it's, uh, you don't have to be a great shot to shoot them at 30 and 20 yards. You know, the great shots come in that those usually the guys that are shooting 60 and 70 yards that uh, you, know, you need to be a better shooter. Again, my goal for me is 20, 30, 40 yards. It's uh, when I get beyond that, it would be have to be a cripple that, you know, we were shooting. Some guys don't mind that one reach. And that's not, I mean, I have in the past, I've done that, but that's not my setup today when I'm going in. Okay, nothing comes in and one goes by at 50, I'm going to shoot it. Today, when I get a little older, if nothing comes in and, I, and I'm struggling working them and a couple go by at 50, I'll get them another day. I'll give them another day. So <clears throat> when I talk about shooting, to me, is the gun fit is number one. It, the brand of guns, again, it's like the calls, it's like decoys. There's a lot of good stuff out there today. To me, with gun, it comes to what, it's not the brand as much as it does it fit you. You have to be able to extension of your arm when you come up. You have to be able, it's like pointing that finger when you're, when you're coming up, it's pointing that finger and then shooting. And wherever I'm pointing my finger, if that if there was a line, a light line that was shot out, it should be pointing right at the object that I want to shoot. If I point and I'm looking at that and I see with the light that I'm hitting a foot above that target, that means that gun's not fitting me. And I've been on a lot of hunts where guys have not patterned their guns or shot their guns and got out there and just embarrassed themselves trying to shoot at birds. And, you know, they'll cuss the gun. They'll say this gun. And, and I'm telling you, dude, it's, you know, it's not the gun. Have you ever tried? Does it fit you? Does this? And they've never checked it. Have you patterned? Did you shoot it? Did you just shoot it on a, a, a piece of paper to see did it hit high? Did it hit to the right? You know, do you, because, you know, back in the old day, we had to take it to a gunsmith to have a gut, the stock dropper to the cast off. Today, all these good guns, they come with the shim kits that pretty much you can uh, shim the gun yourself to adapt. You know, everybody's cheek and face and length of pull is, is different. So it's not a gun's fault. There is a one gun out there made to fit everybody, you know. And I believe that it's just once you get that gun customized to you, the second thing that I know when I know them, the guns fit me with proper fit is that I, I tell guys all the time, dude, while you're watching TV, you don't even have to shoot trap. What I think, especially in, in, in the, when we're in layout blinds or even could be in an A-frame, but the gun, we're not in our natural position. If you were shooting trap, standing up, the head up, and then holding the guns and pull, you know, you're sitting, the gun's laying down. So we have to grab that gun. We have to make the first step, the shoulder. I think more birds and more trap is, is missed in that process of not shouldering properly, and then 
the guy once he's got here and not because he he was fit how many times it, it, you talk to a lot of experienced guys i can tell when i shoulder that gun when i'm on and it goes up and i know because i know where my gun shoots i know where that bird's at and i know when i pull that trigger i know that bird's gonna fall if he don't it, i've either that gun didn't have shot in it or it didn't have enough powder but pretty much you know that sight you know because i've shot enough that i know the line of sight i know that pattern i know the lead and i know that gun so but that shouldering what i'm saying is i sit, used to sit home all the time to me i always want that stock underneath this cheekbone because when it's under this cheekbone see that's under my eye this is where i'm looking if i'm down here this comes up or this up this is down you want to come up to that same point every time so when i'm hitting that cheekbone then if I look, and I'm looking at that bird, but if you look down, that barrel is straight. I have a straight line of path of shot as I'm looking. So I've seen so many guys try to come up in a two, uh, I call it two swing to shoulder a gun. To me, when I'm hunting a layup line, I'm coming up, that gun comes up one motion. So once she's here, you always want to keep practicing when I'm there, putting that gun, that stock comes right, right to there every time. Boom, there every time. I'm not here one time. I'm not up here. I'm not doing that. I want to be right here every time. So that's something that you can do. You want to take that a step further. You can put a mag light at the end of your barrel like we used to do in the old days. I sit there and turn that light on and shoulder that gun and then see where the ceiling and the wall connect and that ridge line that goes through there you can take that and as you practice your left to right or right to left and you're swinging, you're gonna look at that, that uh, where the wall and ceiling meet and follow that. And if your gun is fit and right onto you, that light beam should be dead center down that seam where they, where they run together. If not, you could be up on the ceiling, that means you're shooting high. If it's down on the wall, that you're shooting low. By knowing this and getting acquainted with that, and this is all before the season. Dude, it's like taking early, you know, they, we have training camps for football and baseball. They just don't start their season, you know, have practice a couple of days and start their season. There's training camps. They're building themselves up to this to, you know, and then when it comes game day, which is us as a hunting season, you know, we've done all our practice. This isn't time to practice. This is go time. So real simple stuff that you do, you know, make you owe it to yourself i and another thing is cool to do get a buddy um they, they really come down a lot on these clay pigeon throwers um and if you can't my dad back in the day we used to have the handheld um throwers that work well too can work but uh it's awesome we i still i practice a lot you know using a clay target thrower uh it doesn't have to be 90 miles an hour i just but it does it helps my hand and eye coordination just kind of sharpen it up. I do a lot of left and rights. You can do cross patterns, or you can sit there and have one come straight over a head. You can have one fly over, however you want to set it up. You know, it's where sporting plays is kind of, but what it does, it's, it's just helping me on the angle shots, learning to, when that one, that bird is flying away and going this way, a lot of people shoot low and behind them to learn. You, you're just educating, training the eye to pick your spot as a fight and it's just like a football quarterback throwing the football the runner runs into the football he's not throwing that football where he's standing he's throwing it ahead of him 
and that receiver is going to run into it. And that's the same thing we're doing as we're shooting at ducks and geese. You know, that shot's going out there and that bird's going to fly into the shot. So that's pretty much going to keep it simple. Last thing I'll leave you is um, eat what you kill. You know, we I used to do a lot of stuff with Cabela's and different stuff. Um, Jay Sporting Goods, we used to do seminars all over different retail outlets and stuff and, and through the years. And when I used to go in these uh, outlets, you know, I had my lanyard with all these bands on and people would go in there. Of course, back in that day, this is before COVID and before we had people who didn't like to hear goose calls and duck calls, but we would uh, run the heck out of those calls in that store. And of course, the, the husbands would bring their wives and kids there and be off with the buddies looking at decoys, whatever. And the next thing you know, you're hitting that call and here be these women with strollers and kids looking for you. And uh, the kids love that. And one of the things I get talking with in my conversation with the, with the wife is that, uh, you know, I asked her if uh, her husband hunted, did, did she hunt? And she said, no. I don't hunt. And I said, well, do you like hunting or hate hunting? And she's always, well, you know, I don't really have an opinion on it, but my husband does it. And then she looks at the lanyard, sees all the bands. And first thing she'll ask me, my gosh, what's that? You explain to her that it, it's, you know, the feds put these on as way of tracking the migration. It's really cool. You call it in and here's the number. And of course she's getting all that. But the first thing in her head, I could see, she's thinking, what in the hell are you doing with all these geese? What are you doing with all these birds? And she'll even ask me that. And our question back every time, our answer back, not a question, but our answer back to her question every time is I said, man, this is protein from above. It's resource from the good Lord. I said, my family, we live on this. We love it. And the answer every time, not one time or, or a few times, every time on a person who doesn't have an opinion whether hunting's good or not, will sit there and tell me, well, if you eat it, I guess it's okay. Guys, that's the message. It isn't the, you know, on Facebook and everything like that. I mean, it's cool that you had your buddies, but it isn't all about, you know, the tons of pictures of the piles of geese. You know, people don't mind when they see you put a buck up there and they see one buck and they see that picture and they're, oh my gosh, he's, shot. Wow, he's big, he's pretty. They look at that. But when they see, you know, a bunch of guys with a bunch of birds, even though it's legal, you got to understand that the, the mentality of people who don't hunt might think, wow, those guys are murderers, they're slaps. Why would they kill so many? You know, those pictures of bloody geese and all that stuff. But when you sit there and, and show, hey man, we went hunting today, we're cleaning our birds. Look at all this meat that we're gonna have this winter. My wife, you know, we're gonna make soup out of this. We're gonna do whatever, you know, we're gonna make jerky. Really work hard to promote. Uh, is, I mean, promoting the hunting aspect. And, you know, I'm in the game where my wife and I own legendary gear and we're, we're in the game called this. So you want to promote your calls. I get that. But on the outside, you know, we all owe this sport a, a lot because it gives us a lot. And I think that the good Lord has, you know, he gave us dominion over that, but it, he also gave us, you know, we are to respect this. And I think that we need as, as uh, hunters and as uh, people out there trying to advocate hunting, that we all owe it to show, you know, the food aspect, the eating aspect. This is survival and this isn't, uh, you know, we love this. I'm not just doing this because I want to kill a bunch, but we're feeding our family and we're, we're taking full use of this resource. And I think that's not enough of that. So, you know, if you can, when you guys are posting your pictures on social media, 
if you're not doing a video and you're just posting pictures, always throw in a picture of the, the duck or geese on a plate and everybody eating, giving a thumbs up. I just, you might think, well, who cares what people think? But dude, we live in a society where everybody's, you can't, you gotta be careful what you call people. You know, it can't be a he, it can't be a she anymore. So I understand, yeah, it, it, you might not see the need in that, but this is a different world today. It wasn't the world that my dad and his dad grew up in, how things were looked at. We are always being scrutinized. People always want to take away from what we got. And I just, um, let's just think about that before we, you know, post the, the gore and, and the, um, you know, the hero shots. But, uh, you know, and so I'm just going to throw some quick recipes to you. You know, there's so many different things. But with Goose, you know, we had a tradition. Nathan Parker, so never forget Nate. Nate was awesome, man. His dad was a big hunter, and Nate. And we were all, we all, we were all rednecks, and our boys grew up hunting. And one of the traditions every day on opening day of Goose was always we'd sit there, and normally I like to brush my geese out and brine them, put them in salt overnight and draw all that blood out, but it was tradition, you know, to cube them up, clean them, wash them real good after you breast them out and then cube them up and you can get the lakeshore batter, um, whatever batter you do like, but I think we use lakeshore batter a lot, but it was a big, big tradition to cube those up and get you some peanut oil and, and a fryer and, and fried goose nuggets opening day. And goose nuggets, cold beer was, was a hard thing to beat. Uh, another thing I like to do is you can take them at breast meat you can soak it and suck out all, get all that blood drained out of there. And the next day, cube it up, put it in a pan, lightly brown it. And then I like to, once I've done that, put it into a crock pot. I think you put four to five golden mushroom soup, golden mushroom soup um, into it. You can, I like um, Yukon gold potatoes. You can use red skin potatoes, cut them in half. You dump those in there with onions, mushrooms. You put carrots, you put celery if you wanted in there. And then I add about five or six beef bouillon cubes, turn it on high for eight hours. You're going to swear it's a roast beef stew. It's a beef stew. Uh, another way you can do that, brine it. Um, well, cut it up in strips. And then if you want to throw it in the bag, after you brine it, throw it in the bag of uh, teriyaki. And let that set for half a day. Then I like to wrap bacon, throw it on medium on the grill. I have a, but on your flat grill, you know, I usually like to put them on two minutes aside, flip them. I think the biggest mistake is cooking uh, wild game too high and too fast. So about medium or low medium and about two minutes on a side and then flip it. And uh, if you don't like that and you want to cook, you know, cook your bacon a little longer, you can pre-cook your bacon a little bit, then put wrap it on. Um, neat thing about that bacon when you're sitting in that bacon grease and all that kind of works into it, but it works into the, the, the meat, adding flavor to that meat. It's a great uh, snack. Um, we love it. So that's just a couple of easy things. One last thing I'll tell you real quick. Another thing we love, uh, if you like pulled, um, pork, uh, pulled beef, or, you know, barbecue, all that stuff. Uh, you can take that goose breast, you can brine it. You don't have to brine it. I still like it better when it's brined, but go out there and brine it and then go out and brine it and then, um, dump that into a crock pot with a gallon of apple cider and let that cook on high for eight hours. When it's done, pour out the apple cider, take it out, shred it all up, get you a big bottle of Sweet Baby Ray's, put that back in the crock pot with all the Sweet Baby Ray's, stir and stir, let it sit for about 30 minutes. And I'm telling you, best cold goose ever. 
and you heard that here. So anyway, we're going to knock it off. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to wrap it up. And uh, that's our early goose podcast. If you have any questions, reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, George Lynch Hunter. Be happy to answer any of your questions and um, comments or anything you had. If you like what you hear, I ask you to please subscribe, help get us going. Um, we're just trying to spread the news. I'm doing what I love to do, and that's about teaching others how to hunt, and how to kill, and, and uh, learn more about what we love to do best. But I truly enjoy, it's an honor to bring it to you. Subscribe if you can, and uh, check us out again at legendarygearusa.com. It's legendarygearusa.com. Please tell a friend, and uh, always remember, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. I'll be out there, rain is shining, all a part of the great design. Bring it on, I can never get enough. Because that's what legends are made of.